Hey there, I'm Rob, one of the pastors here at Central. Before you watch the sermon today, I want to take a moment to personally invite you to join us for our Christmas experiences on December 19th or the 20th. For many years, Central has been known for its celebration of the Christmas season, and this year will be no exception. Please, you're invited. Join us for one of our two services, Saturday the 19th at 7 p.m. or Sunday morning the 20th at 10 a.m. We hope to see you there. Now let's get you to that sermon, and we hope to see you here in person this Sunday. series entitled Refugee would like to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And if you are a guest this morning, it's so great to have you here. My name is Brad. Uh, one of the things we value here at Central is people being able to follow along with us in the biblical text. So if any of you need a copy of scripture, our ushers are coming down the aisles. You can throw your hand up. Uh, feel free to use your phone or your tablet. But if you'd like a physical copy of scripture and you didn't bring one this morning, no worries, throw your hand up. And then when we get to our first passage, uh, the page number will be on the screen behind me. So we are in week two. Last week, we talked about our biblical faith heritage. And for those of you who weren't here, maybe you were traveling, seeing family and friends over Thanksgiving. We hope you had a wonderful time. But just to catch you up and really to remind us who were here last week exactly what we did in order to serve as a starting point for this morning. Now, I got to share a little bit about my family heritage last week in that my family's last name is not, has not always been gray, but uh, the name Heisinga, a good Dutch name. I've got Dutch roots on my dad's side. So it was really fun for me after three years to finally let some of you Dutch folks know that my family's last name was Heisinga. Um, but actually, it was fun to hear just the different comments that came out of that. And the most interesting, fun comment that came out of it was actually from somebody in our community who has the last name Gray, spelled the exact same way, G-R-A-Y. Taz Gray, some of you know who he is, uh, put this on Twitter after the service last Sunday. This is what he put up on Twitter. He says, I don't know how I feel about at walking the text, that's my Twitter handle name, not being a quote-unquote real Gray, hashtag disturbing revelation. <laughs> oh, I thought that was just fantastic. I just wrote back and said, dude, I can be both. It's okay. You know, it's going to be both. Well, we did dive into our faith heritage, deeply into the biblical text, to be reminded, or maybe for some of us to have a first-time realization that, that what Paul did in the text is he said, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Israelite story isn't just the Jewish story. That if you're a follower of Jesus, it's your story. Those are your ancestors. That is the story and the heritage that you come out of. And so we looked at what is that storyline and leading up to the Exodus and following the Exodus, the whole story of Israel's founding, if you will, as a nation, and what God did in the midst of that was all centered around a refugee reality. 
And so we explored that and we talked about that is our heritage, that is our root, and that we want to see our story in the biblical story because when we can see our story in another story, we can respond to people who are having a similar experience. We can respond with empathy, with action, and with love. And we spent just a little bit of the time in the teaching talking about the refugee crisis. The majority of the teaching was just on people who are displaced, whether it's literal refugees, and we talked about it from other angles as well. But as you can imagine, with an emotionally charged topic like the social or the refugee crisis, that Craig and I got some very interesting responses this past week. Now, a number of these responses, we found that the teaching itself was just really helpful to many of you, that you came back and you said, thank you for helping us understand what the Bible says and try to help us to understand a little bit what's going on. That clarified a lot. That was very helpful. Uh, some said, I- I've got a number of concerns. And a number of people voiced those concerns in a really helpful, respectful, Jesus-like kind of way. And others, uh, not so much. But uh, concerns are concerns. And so what Craig and I, as we were talking through this week, we just thought it would be helpful to take just a few minutes just to be reminded of what we said last week and what we didn't say last week. Uh, And one of the things I just want to draw your your attention to is that in a number of the questions that that Craig and I received, uh, we collaborated on some answers. And on Craig's blog, which is craigreese.org, yesterday and today, he put some of those answers that we've worked on on his blog as a way of helping us as a community to wrestle with some of these with some of these issues. Uh, So I just want to let you know that that's a resource available to you. Now, one of the things just to understand is that when it comes to government, their first and foremost responsibility is the security of her citizens. That is what the government is called to do. Now, last week, when we talked about the refugee reality for a little bit of time, we were not addressing issues of national security or immigration policy. We were talking about Christian response. What do we do with those who are already here? Now, I did talk about the 13 levels of vetting that these refugees do go through as a way to mitigate some of the fear and concern that people had without understanding the process and wondering, okay, these people are just showing up and we're supposed to just trust them. And we said, no, there is actually a process. And some of you have highlighted the fact that the government can probably do a better job with these 13 levels, that it isn't a perfect system, that between the United Nations and the United States that there's more that can be done. And that's, that's very, very true. And then some of you also will recognize that there were articles that came out this last week said that these 13 levels are the best vetting system that has ever been in place for the United States as of, as of now, to date. And if you only read one side of the news, your opinion is going to be a bit shaded. Okay? And both sides of the argument have some really good things for us to consider. But what we were not addressing were those who wanted to come here or what the policies ought to be for them to get here. Our response was, what do we do with those who are here, right here, right now, and they have needs? And we said, we believe biblically we are to respond to them with empathy, with action, and with love. Yes, be discerning. Yes, make sure that everything kind of is in place, but that our first response should say, how can we love these people well? 
And after one of the services, this was kind of the highlight for me last week, is that after one of the services, I had somebody come up with tears just streaming down their face. And the first words out of their mouth were, I am one of those refugees. Here, at Central, worshiping Jesus Christ. And my response, which I was so grateful to be able to do, was to say, welcome to Central. We love you, and we are so glad you are here. Yeah. A very, very redemptive moment. Now, some of you have pointed out, you know what? The refugees, they don't want to be here. And you know what? You're right. They don't want to be here. You know where they want to be? They want to be home. But for millions of them, this is what home looks like. They don't have the option to go home. That's not available to them. They have to go somewhere. And for those who have ended up on our front doorstep, we are going to seek to love them really, really well. And as Mike mentioned during the prayer time, be in prayer for our national leaders around our government policy, around things like immigration, around the refugee crisis. But as we were reminded with California this week, we also have a very big issue on our hands when it comes to mass shootings. That these are Americans who are enacting in these kinds of acts. And yes, some have connection to radical groups around the world, but a lot of them do not. We have a number of issues on our hands here in the United States. Uh, and prayer is needed for our leaders to use their power and authority to bring change that is good and redemptive to a country that is hurting. So please be in prayer for them. But as I mentioned earlier, last week, we spent a larger portion of the time talking about the refugee reality that people can encounter that isn't just literal refugee reality that people are going through who show up here in West Michigan and the United States and around the world. And we said we don't want to mitigate the fact that people are going through a really tough time, that refugees, this is their reality, but we also want to be cognizant of, cognizant of that the entire Christmas story is grounded in a refugee reality. And some of you are thinking, yeah, but we talked about the Exodus last week. What's Christmassy about that? You will find out December 19th and 20th what that has to do with the Christmas story. But for our time this morning, let's delve into the Christmas story like Mary and Joseph and like baby Jesus on the way that we would typically associate with the Christmas story, Matthew chapter one. So we're going to be in Matthew one. We're gonna camp here today. And in Matthew's version of the infancy narrative, we have Joseph's perspective uh, many of you may know that out of the four biographies on the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only Matthew and Luke talk about anything connected to Jesus' birth or an infancy narrative is what's called. And uh, Luke's version is through Mary's eyes, really through her experience, and Matthew's version is through Joseph's perspective. And so we're going to be centering in on Joseph this morning. And we're going to read from verse 18 and we're going to read several verses. Some of these will be very familiar because we did them also during the worship set as well. But notice with me Matthew 1 verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. So they're in an engagement period right now. 
But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, well, that's interesting. We were just told that they were engaged and yet Joseph is a husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So we're talking about engagement and we're using the word husband and now we gotta talk about divorce? What in the world is going on here? Verse 20, but after he had considered this, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, Maybe some of you know this, but uh, Jesus was not actually what he was called. Uh, His Hebrew name is Yeshua, which is connected to the Hebrew word for salvation. So Jesus' name literally means God saves or the salvation of God. And so as the angel is telling Joseph what's going on here, the idea is is that God's salvation is coming to save people from their sins. This is what Jesus is going to do. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Okay, so Matthew's helping us understand this. Verse 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son because Joseph was an absolute stud. I'm sure that's somewhere in the Greek, right? He was, he held back, he was self-controlled, they were married and yet they did not have intercourse. All right, it's what's telling us here. And then he, Joseph, gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph named Jesus. Okay, what in the world is going on here? Again, we have pledged to be married, the engagement, and we have Joseph's a husband, and we're talking about divorce, and then they get married, but how does all of this work out? So uh, as a way of helping us understand this a little bit, here's what I'd like to do. Do we have any engaged couples in the congregation this morning. Anybody engaged that they would like to raise their hands and help? Are you two are engaged? Are you? Would you come up and help me? I promise you this will be memorable. Not sure if that'll be good or not, but hey, can you welcome them to the stage? This is fantastic. Yes. And I, is that navy blue or black that you have on? That's navy blue. Okay, I was... Going to be wearing black. That would look very odd. We'd be wearing almost the same outfit this morning. So I'm glad that God talked with us a little differently there. So very good. Come on out here. I'm Brad. You are? Chelsea. Chelsea and? And Colin. And Colin. Colin and Chelsea. Fantastic. All right. I just have a few questions I just want to throw your way. Okay? And it's just, but they're, they're real easy questions. All right? Um, when did you guys get engaged? March. March. Very good. Congratulations. When are you getting married? September of next year. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, let's see here. Uh, whose idea was it for you guys to get married? What do you mean? <laughs> Just a simple question. Whose idea was it that you, for you to get married? Both of ours. Both of yours. That seems like a responsible answer, doesn't it? Yeah, that's good. Um, your parents didn't decide this? This, 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 this? It's not a trick question. Don't worry. It's a, it's, a, it's a trick question. No. No? 
Parents didn't have anything to do. It wasn't a prearranged marriage. Nope. No, they didn't have any say in this. This was pretty much just something. I mean, I'm sure they gave you blessing, but all this. Yep. Okay, all right, very good. Uh, how much did you pay her family to marry her? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. No bride price? Nope. Seriously, and your family was okay with this? No. <laughs> I love the actor in this young lady. I love it. So no bride price, no bride price. Okay, well, we'll move on to the next thing. Uh, what did you decide that you're gonna be bringing into the marriage by way of dowry? What did you guys decide? What did your family decide? Anything at all? No, do you even know what a dowry is? <laughs> Just a pretty face. That works for most, all right? Well done, well done. Uh, so, so, so we've got no, no bride price, and your family was okay with her not bringing dowry? Like, you were okay with that? I don't know, I feel like you're smacked, but that's okay. All right, so, so you, no dowry, no bride price, okay. Uh, I'm assuming you've talked about where you're gonna be living, like you're looking for an apartment, looking for a home, pretty much, something like that. You're, you're not living with his family? You're not living with them, like for the rest of your marriage, you guys are not living with his family. Like in their house? Like in their house. No. 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 <laughs> that face just says it all. Okay, so, so, so we're not doing that. All right, I'm, just, I'm just trying to come up with a question that I can ask to get an appropriate response for. Okay, so all right, let's, just, let's leave the rest of it. Let me just ask you just a very basic question. Uh, when, was, uh, when was the last time you guys went on a date? You been on a date recently? Okay, you guys need to have another conversation after the service, all right? What was the last time you went on a date? For your birthday, how long ago was your birthday? This is going to really put you on the spot. October. Uh, October. Okay, this is in October. All right, so it's been, it's been a good time. Did you guys, where would you go? We went to Mojo's. Mojo's. Who'd you go with? My friends from school. Your friends from school. Fascinating. Did they serve as your chaperones? Uh, no. no. You didn't have any chaperones on this date? No. No. Uh, how old are you? I'm 21. You're 21? Wow, you two are old. Seriously. All right. Now, from our conversation here, all of this is good and right and wholesome. You need to take her on a date sometime soon, but that's okay. <laughs> In our day, all of this is good and right and fabulous. In the first century world, you two are an absolute train wreck in every sense of the word. But in our day and age, you guys are doing it right. Thank you so much for helping me today. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Thanks for helping. <laughs> Fabulous. Fantastic. What I want to help you to understand is why I asked them all of those questions. Because the first century world and our world is very, very different. So what I want to help you understand are kind of these two parts to the wedding ceremony, to being officially married, which encompasses the engagement slash betrothal period, as well as the wedding celebration. And what I have done is I have put on the slides a number of points for two purposes. One, so that you can pull this off the internet later on this week because all of our slides are available next to the teaching on our website. So for those of you who are like, I really want to get this down, but Brad, you're flying through this, you can snag this off the internet. Second reason is to keep me really tight on what I say so I don't totally blow through my time allotment today. And my hope is, is that in helping you understand all of these pieces, there is a lot to this, but my hope is, is that 
you will then understand the weight and significance of the passage we just read from Matthew chapter 1. Okay, so here we go. In the betrothal engagement period, it's arranged by the parents with the couple's consent. So the couples have some say in this, but it is the parents who prearrange the marriage. And they do this on behalf of their kids. And I mean that in a respectful, literal way. Because for the girl, she's generally between 12 and 14. Mary was probably 12 years old, 13, maybe 14 at the oldest. Joseph was probably 16, 17, 18. Hence, their age being so old if you were getting married in the ancient world. It was initiated with a marriage contract known as the Ketubah. So you would go to a scribe. Both sets of families would go to a scribe. They would say, these two are going to be getting married. And it would stipulate both the bride price and the dowry. Now, the bride price is what the groom pays to the bride's family. Not to buy her from her family, but really for two reasons. One, as a way of saying, thank you for raising an honorable daughter. And second, because at the marriage the woman would leave her family and she would now join her husband at his father's house and be part of that community. And so it was a way to compensate the bride's family for the loss of the contributing member. Make sense? That was known as the bride price. The dowry is something that the woman would bring into the marriage because it was generally a sum of money that if something happened and the marriage was dissolved or the husband died, and if this woman's family had passed away, her parents, and nobody was able to take care of her, she would have something to live on, a way of providing for herself. So that was known as the dowry, and that was stipulated in the ketubah as well. Now, at the moment, this is signed, they are legally married. This is legally binding as marriage. She is known as his wife. He is known as her husband. And literally, because this is binding, it could only be dissolved by death or divorce. And if the guy died in the betrothal period, by law, the woman was seen legally as a widow. But here's the catch. They did not consummate their marriage at this point. There was no intercourse or unchaperoned time alone. Now, for those of you English majors, you'll go, I don't think the word unchaperoned is actually a word. I don't think it is easy or either, but it works. So we're going to go with it, okay? Now, in Judea, in Judea, you were allowed, there was a little less strict in this, that you could go off just the two of you. But in the Galilee, which is where Mary and Joseph are growing up in Nazareth, no way, absolutely not, were you allowed to be out being unchaperoned. In fact, during this time, the woman still lived in her father's house. Okay, so this is part of the betrothal period. And it lasted approximately one year. That was kind of the average time frame to be expected. Now, let's go to the wedding celebration. How it would begin is this. There would be a procession from the groom's family. So let's say this is the groom's family compound, and whether it's in the same village just on the other side or in another town, the groom, the groomsmen, the family connected to the groom, they would all process to the bride's house, and they would pick up the bride and the bridesmaids and her family, and then they, and they would all come back to the groom's father's house where they would have a seven-day wedding celebration. No little five-hour party. We're going to party the whole week. By the way, this is why it was so devastating in John 2 when the wine ran out. There was still lots of time left in the wedding celebration. So it lasted seven days. Um, and then 
the first night, the couple would consummate the marriage. They would go into the wedding chamber, and at this point, they would be officially married as we think marriage today. And then they would do something else after they had consummated the marriage. So on the second day, and this is going to feel a little bit odd and maybe a little icky grossy to those of us in the West. And I don't say that West 21st century world. I just say the West because this is true in many places in Africa as well. Is that on that next day, the groom would present to the community a white cloth that would have blood on it to prove the, the wife's virginity. This is an honor and shame culture where everything you do either brings you honor or brings you shame to demonstrate to the community that this marriage came together with the woman being a virgin brought honor both to the bride's family and to the groom's family as well. Okay? And then they would move in with the groom's family and everything would go from there. So Mary and Joseph are in the betrothment period, the engagement period, and Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. Now, Joseph doesn't know anything that's going on. He doesn't know what God is up to. He doesn't know what the Holy Spirit has done. He doesn't know that Mary hasn't done anything wrong. What Joseph finds out is that Mary is pregnant. If you are Joseph, how are you feeling in this moment? Yeah, you're angry, you're frustrated, you're confused, you feel betrayed, which I think I heard back there. By the way, betrayal is probably one of the worst human emotions we can experience. He feels like he's been duped. I thought I, know, I thought I knew her. Now, Joseph and Mary may not have known each other as well as we often think, but maybe Joseph said, at least I knew her family, what their reputation was. So he feels like I've been duped, my family's been duped. He feels a sense of shame because this is an honor and shame culture. She's committed adultery. That's what's going through his mind. Now, notice this. Jewish and Roman law required divorce for adultery. It was seen as such a breach of marriage that it required divorce. In fact, in Roman culture, if a man had a wife who committed adultery and he did not divorce her, he could be taken into the court system and being charged with something in Latin called laconinium, which basically means he's her pimp. He could be imprisoned for not divorcing his wife. Now in Judaism, most of the segments within Judaism required divorce for adultery. And so Joseph is going to divorce Mary because he believes that is the right thing to do. So he's going to divorce her, we find out in the text, and Joseph has two options for divorce. On the one hand, he can divorce her publicly. If he does it publicly, this is what it entails. It is done with a judge or an elder at the village gate. All legal judicial issues were handled at the city gate or the village gate. And it was where the whole town showed up. It was in the middle of everything. It was as public as public can get. Everybody is there hearing the, what's going on about this couple. It was 
uh, in the fact that, that if she was proven to be guilty of this, he would get to keep the dowry. So what she brought in, those finances, they stay with him because she committed adultery. Then when it comes to the bride price, the bride's family would be mandated to return that bride price back to the groom. The groom in those moments would be able to publicly absolve himself of any wrongdoing. He got to stand up in the city gate and say, I did nothing wrong. I was not at fault. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know what was going on. I recently found out I am not guilty of anything in this. At this moment, he already feels a sense of shame because he has aligned himself with someone who went off and committed adultery. And so in this moment, he'd also have the chance to avenge his shame, the loss of his honor, which is huge in this moment. Because in the ancient world, being shamed publicly was worse than death. It was one of the worst experiences you could possibly have is being publicly shamed. And the guy gets to stand up and say, I did nothing wrong. He gets to avenge his shame, the loss of his honor. And then as a result of all of this, she and her family would incur significant shame that would have long, long lasting ramifications. Now, some of you who know the biblical text go, yep, I get all of that, but couldn't she also be stoned? Isn't there something in like the Older Testament that says a woman who commits adultery can be stoned? Yes. However, some things had changed by the first century world. And uh, a guy by the name of Craig S. Keener, who is a brilliant New Testament scholar who's at Asbury, has done a tremendous amount of work on the first century world, hence being a New Testament scholar. And he's the one I've learned a lot from in all of this. This is what he writes in the InterVarsity Press Bible Backgrounds Commentary um, on this. He says, The penalty for adultery under Old Testament law was death by stoning, and this penalty applied to infidelity during betrothal as well per Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 24. In New Testament times, Joseph would have merely been required to divorce Mary and expose her to shame. The death penalty was rarely, if ever, executed for this offense. So was there the threat of stoning? Yeah. Do we have really any record of anybody doing this in the first century world? No. Um, but I'm sure that would have been kind of part of it as well. So this is what Joseph has an option if he takes this the public route. But as we find out from the text, notice again Matthew 1.19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Now I have in parentheses next to this literally righteous. It's the phrase faithful to the law that in the Greek literally just says righteous because Joseph, her husband, was righteous. Now, what the NIV has done here is helped you understand in this moment what are the implications of being righteous, and that is being faithful to the law, being faithful to God's word. But I want to specifically put this up there because I think that's part of it. We'll talk about the other part of it in a little bit. So on the one hand, I like the fact that it helps you understand that righteous means being obedient to God's word, but there's more to it. But in this moment, just recognize righteous is a very key phrase or key word that was used in Jewish culture. If you were ascribed as being righteous, that was one of the highest compliments, if not the highest compliment you could receive because it indicated that you were a person of integrity, that you were of someone who had honor, someone who was about justice, didn't cut corners who was faithful and obedient 
to the very word of God. You are called in Hebrew, tzaddik, righteous. This is what Joseph is called. And it tells us that because he was righteous, and it says, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph is taking option two, which was to divorce, not publicly, but privately. Now, here are the implications of this. If Joseph divorced her privately, he would be required to do so in the presence of only two or three witnesses. This is per a Deuteronomy 19 passage. Joseph would give her a certificate of divorce. It was called a get in Hebrew, and it would basically absolve Mary of any responsibility to be connected to Joseph any longer, and vice versa. He'd lose the dowry because this wasn't done in a public setting, so there was a financial loss to going this route. He'd potentially not recoup the bride price. Now, by law, he didn't have to receive the bride price back. That was not mandated of the bride's family. But because this is an honor and shame culture, and because the bride's family is feeling an immense amount of shame around this, just to reinstate just even a sliver of honor, they would have returned the bride price back to the groom, just for honor's sake. Joseph would lose any opportunity to regain his honor. He wouldn't be able to stand up in front of everyone and say, I didn't do anything wrong. Don't levy any shame against me. I did nothing wrong. He absolved himself of that opportunity. But, but, he'd mitigate her and her family's shame. He would spare them the public shame that would come from a public trial. Well, here's the really great reveal, right? Joseph finds out Mary did nothing wrong. That's really great news. Who did the news come from? An angel. Makes sense, doesn't it? You're going to need an angel to tell you that one. It's going to be really hard for Mary to say, Joseph, I got knocked up and I didn't have sex with anybody. Yep, good luck explaining that one, Mary. So an angel comes to Joseph and says, this is what God has been up to. This is what God has done through the Holy Spirit. You are going to give birth to the Messiah. And for Joseph, being a righteous man, he was seeking to be obedient to God, and he thought that obedience to God was divorcing Mary. But in this moment, through the angel, Joseph finds out that obedience to God comes in marrying Mary. It's a little bit of a tongue twister, by the way. All right, Mary, Mary. He is called to marry Mary. Now, we hear that and we go, yes, a happy ending to the story. Joseph found out he hadn't been betrayed. His heart that had been on the ground and stomped on, he was able to pick up, put back inside, and with great joy, they're going to give birth to the Messiah. Hoo-wee! Let's throw a party. But let's understand what the implications were for their obedience. Because if Joseph chooses to marry Mary. Here's what we find out. Joseph, to the larger community, would be acknowledging that he impregnated her. To the larger community that hasn't had any angelic visit, who's going to have a really hard time, yeah, you two young teenagers, you didn't get pregnant not having sex, Mm, I'm not sure, so sure how that works. Or, or, 
Joseph would be condoning her act of adultery. If Joseph didn't do it, then by marrying her by cultural implications, he would basically not be condoning this massively shameful act in that first century world. And in the midst of all of this, he'd be taking on her shame. He would be aligning himself with her. So even if he didn't do anything, people say, wasn't your fault. The very fact that he would go through and get married to her, he takes on her shame as well. And because we're told that they get married immediately after, we're assuming it didn't go the entire year, it would create a lot of suspicion for not waiting for the one-year betrothal period that they were in the midst of right now. But here's the one that I'd never thought of before and absolutely blew my mind, is that they wouldn't be able to prove Mary's virginity and exonerate themselves from community's shame. Here's what I mean by that. What Matthew tells us after the angel has had the conversation with Joseph is that Matthew tells us there's a prophecy that says that the virgin will conceive and give birth. Now, I don't have time to go into this prophecy from Isaiah 7, 14 and talk about, well, who was that originally connected to and why was that prophecy given in Isaiah and all of that. But Matthew wants us to understand that they do what they do because of the prophecy's sake. Now, what they could have done is that Mary got pregnant while being a virgin. What they could have done is at the wedding ceremony... They could have consummated the marriage and then brought out a red rag to the community to say, see, she got pregnant, but she was a virgin. But they didn't do that. And you go, why didn't they do that? I believe wholeheartedly it was out of obedience to God and out of obedience to what they understood that prophecy to be that it wasn't just a virgin conception but also a virgin birth as well. And they took on this obedience when they could have, they had every right as a married couple who's gone through the first day of the wedding celebration to consummate their marriage. That was available to them. That was good, that was wholesome, that was wholesome to have sex on your wedding night. And yet, they don't do that. The one thing that could have exonerated them from the community shame, they chose not to do that. And think about the self-control. They're living in a little one-room bedroom after they're married, until they have Jesus, and they show this amazing self-control because for the honor of the Messiah, they wanted him to not only have a virgin conception, but also a virgin birth. But because they did this, they were branded social refugees. Say just this way, Joseph and Mary's obedience to God led them to becoming social outcasts and refugees. Without question, they were shunned and shamed by this community. They lived the rest of their lives as social outcasts. And by the way, the social stigma that they contracted by being obedient to God not only followed them in their life, but guess who else it followed? Jesus. In some cases, people would call him the illegitimate child of Nazareth. It cost Mary and Joseph something to be obedient. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I was thinking about this this last week. Has it ever dawned on you that God didn't just haphazardly send the eternal son to just any random old family? But that God was looking for a righteous man and a righteous woman to raise a righteous son. And that righteousness encompassed being obedient to God. And friends, the reality also holds true for us as well. That we could just say it this way, that obedience to God can often lead to a social refugee reality. You stand up for something that you believe in, and as a result of what you believe to be obedience to God and to stand up for what you believe, you become ostracized, shunned, excluded, branded, skipped over for the promotion, ridiculed, because what you have done has run countered to the opinion of others. It happens all the time, doesn't it? Some of you may know this very intimately well, and by the way, I said can often lead because it depends on your context. Some of you maybe operate in a Christian context where you can bring forth your beliefs, where your righteousness can be on display and you won't be ostracized, you won't be shunned, but for many of you other people, you operate in a context on a daily basis where you experience this reality quite often. I mean, think about it. you're working on a team uh, at work and you have to present a, a case for a certain product or a certain service and as the team is running one direction, you start to realize, man, I don't feel like this is really holding up to the integrity of what we're supposed to pitch. We're in fact saying a lot of things that are very shady and you feel like you've crossed the ethical boundaries and you're struggling with, should I speak up, should I not? And you speak up and all of a sudden the rest of the team doesn't feel like that you're carrying your weight, that you're going to be a contributing member to the team, that they're concerned about what the boss is going to say and because they're upset with your attempt at trying to be righteous, you will be branded an outsider. It happens in the school setting. One of my great joys this last week is I had an opportunity to speak to a freshman class at Hope College Unbeknownst to me, until a couple of months ago, I found out that one of the textbooks for this class was Make Your Mark, the book on Samson that I wrote. And it's a class centered around chapter seven's questions. Who are you? What are you doing here? And it's a semester-long class where they're talking about who are you? How has God wired you to be? Why are you here? What is God calling you to do to be a reminder that the decisions you make matter? Yes, you're in college, and some people just say, throw off restraints, but understand the decisions you make here are going to affect you. They're going to affect you now. They're going to affect you later. They're going to affect you, and they're going to affect others around you. And so it was a great joy for me to be able to go into the classroom and talk to them about their calling and what does it mean about getting things right in our life that are, that, that are wrong and, and how do we live this thriving life and recognize that our decisions matter. But going into it, I had a scouting report with the professor and I just said, hey, help me to understand the context of these students. What are they talking about? What are they struggling with? How can I serve them well today? And the professor said, actually, we had a conversation in the, in, in the last class where one of the things that the students kept remarking about is that one of the biggest pressures they feel in, co in college is to follow the status quo. And that if they run counter to what all of their friends feel like is the appropriate thing to do on a Friday night, or what their friends think is an appropriate aspect to the relationship that you're dating a guy or a girl, what you do or don't do in all of that, they said that they feel like if they stand up for what they believe is right and it's contrary to everyone else, that they are going to experience ostracism 
by their classmates and by their friends. We know this is true in Christian schools. We know that's true in, in non-Christian schools. It's in college and universities. It's in middle school. It's in high school. It's in elementary. You know what? It happens in our workplaces. It happens among coworkers. It happens among our classmates. And it can also happen among our families. Do you know the number one time of year for people to experience a social refugee reality within their own extended family is between Thanksgiving and New Year's Day? Why is that? Well, on the one hand, the weather's changing and some people are a little bit cranky. They haven't quite adapted to the changing weather. There's lots of, te lots of tension and a lot of stress around the holidays. But what often happens, whether at Thanksgiving or at Christmas time, is that you end up, you know, at someone's house and lots of family are all there and you find yourself in a little corner of the kitchen or you find yourself in a corner of the living room and all of a sudden someone in the room just says, hey, who are you going to be voting for for the upcoming election? Not an innocent question. What do you think about this political policy? What do you think about this political issue? Hey, hey, what's your take on this issue that the church has been wrestling with? Or all of a sudden there's some side conversations going on because there's something that has gone, in, gone on within the family, but not the entire extended family knows what's going on. And so something has happened with someone over here. And so someone over here is talking to you, but they're saying quietly so it doesn't pass on. So no one else hears it over here. And they're like, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think they, that they should be doing and all of that? And you get caught in all these conversations. But then in those moments, you have to give forth an answer, whether it's for a faith issue, a political issue, or a family thing. And all of a sudden you give your view and you believe it's out of obedience and out of righteousness that you say, I think this is the issue, this is what's going on, I think this is the right response, and then all of a sudden everybody else doesn't like what you had to say? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because it happened to you on Thanksgiving Day. Obedience to God can often lead to a social refugee reality, but friends, this shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that when we believe we are aligning ourselves to God, it is going to run contrary to the rest of our culture. We should expect this. This is not new information for us. What you need to hear this morning is it's okay. This is something Mary and Joseph experienced. It's okay to experience a social refugee reality because of obedience to God. In fact, I would maybe argue and contend that unless you are living solely in a Christian bubble, that if you live out your obedience to God, you will be experiencing a social refugee reality on a somewhat regular basis. That is part of what it is to be obedient to God. But in our few remaining moments, I wanna just center on this question connected to all of this, is what is our response when we find ourselves in a social refugee reality? How do we respond? What do we do? You see, I believe this is the other half of the righteousness. And as we look back at Joseph here in Matthew 1:19 again, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, let's just translate this more literally, because Joseph was righteous, the text goes on and says, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. The way that this translation has it is that the righteousness is connected solely to the obedience. Other translations will say, because Joseph, her husband, was righteous, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, meaning that his righteousness came in the fact that he was compassionate towards Mary. I believe it's both. I believe that the righteousness is not only in being obedient to God, 
but then also demonstrating compassion to the one that is making your life very, very miserable. Just say it this way. Joseph was righteous because he was both faithful to God and compassionate to Mary, despite his feelings of shame and betrayal. Remember, this is all before he gets a look into what's been going on. This is how he feels. This is what is going on. Joseph's response was, yes, I want to be obedient to God, but in the same token, and in the same token, not like in contrast to, but in continuation, he says, but I want to be compassionate towards this person. Understand, friends, Joseph took a massive risk by joining himself to Mary. Joseph could have said, I didn't do anything. I don't want any part of this. But the moment he came alongside of, because she was already a social refugee. She was already a displaced person. She was already on the outside. He was still on the inside. He still had his character intact. And yet he knew in this moment, if I align myself to somebody who is on the outside, the dominant culture is not going to like this. And what's more, I am going to give up my own security and my own ability to control what people think about me. And yet Joseph's response was in all of this, I am going to show compassion. When he married Mary, that was what was at stake. And at this moment though, before he finds out that Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit, he still wants to be compassionate, which gives us two angles to his compassion. On the one hand, Joseph says, how can I help and be compassionate to someone who is in need? He felt for Mary. But on the other hand, Joseph was where he was because of Mary, and yet he still responded in a way that was compassionate. And this is what I believe God calls us to do as well is that when we are obedient, when we align ourselves with someone who is on the outside, against the dominant culture, it's gonna put us in a hard position. But you know what? That's part of being a righteous person. But Joseph as well set a precedent for us that said, even if someone has hurt you, that has led you into that social refugee reality, how can you respond to them in love and grace and compassion as well? Now understand, in the midst of this latter part of it, that doesn't mean that if you need to set up boundaries, that you set up boundaries. That if someone has hurt you and has led you into a social refugee reality, be wise, be discerning, make good decisions around that, but at the root of everything you do, do it in a compassionate, loving way. Boundaries can still be a form of love, friends. And if you have to set them up, set them up. Joseph was righteous because he was both obedient and compassionate. Is this your reality? Is this who you are? Are you a person of honor, of integrity? Are you someone that actively seeks to demonstrate compassion, grace, mercy, love, to those on the outside, whether they've hurt you or whether you just come across them. See, this is what I love about the way this passage ends. Is that it says Jesus came to save us from our sins. If you feel like you haven't quite lived up to a righteous standard. If you haven't been a person of integrity, cut corners, 
you haven't been gracious and compassionate and loving to people that have hurt you. The beauty is, is that Jesus says, I've come to save you from your brokenness. I will help you. Let me in on your story. Confess this. Let me know what's going on. Jesus already knows, but he often just waits for us to acknowledge it for ourselves. Jesus says, I'll come and help. I've come to save you. I've come to be with you. I've come to be for you. I've come to walk alongside you. I've come to help you to be this kind of a person. So friends, when you enter into those conversations this Christmas season, particularly when you're with family and extended family, uh, I pray that you would be that you would be compassionately bold. That you wouldn't back down, that if you need to share what you believe to be the right thing, I pray that you would do it. I pray that you'd be courageous. But I pray that you would also do it in a compassionate, gracious, and loving way. And I want to end just with a quote from Bob Goff. Some of you know the name Bob Goff. Bob Goff wrote Love Does, and he spoke at Holland Christian a few months ago at the Living Stones event. I really love this guy. Very, very inspirational person and writer, and uh, he put this up on Instagram on the day before Thanksgiving, and I absolutely loved it. Let me just show you this quote that he posted. Uh, He said this, holidays can be stressful. Don't be too hard on each other, okay? I think that's a good word for us all. Let's pray. Father God, we bless and we thank you today that we have had the opportunity to open your word. God, we thank you that in many parts of the world today, they cannot openly stand up and preach the name of Jesus, that they can't open up the Bible and talk about what God's word is. And so, God, we don't take that for granted. We thank you for that privilege this morning. We thank you for the privilege to delve deeply into the story of Mary and Joseph this morning, to understand that obedience will always cost us something. But God, in those moments where we find ourselves branded a social refugee or when we come into people who have entered into a refugee reality, that we would respond to them in compassion, grace, and love. Joseph set an example. Mary set an example. Jesus learned righteousness from his own parents. And obviously, Jesus, you being the epic example of righteousness, we pray that you would draw us closer to yourself, that you would help us in the areas that we haven't done what maybe we think we could have done or should have done. We pray that you would just guide us in our story ahead. We love you. We bless you. We thank you for today. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, let's stand and let's close with a word of blessing. Uh, if you've got kiddos, please run and snag them afterwards. A reminder, 430 This afternoon, this is going to be a huge night. Mike stressed it. I can't stress it enough. We really, really are excited to share what we believe God has been doing for a while and has just continued to give clarification on how to move forward, and we can't wait to present that. If you're a guest here today, so great to have had you here. Out through the door, straight out by the information, there's an area where we'd like to connect with you, ask any questions you might have, and as always, we'll have people up front wearing orange tags. I'll be up front. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, help you in any way we can. My friends and family, as you leave here today, may you do so seeking to always be obedient to the word of God regardless of the cost. And when you find yourself in a social refugee reality, may you respond in compassion, grace, and love. And may you experience this week the continuing grace, mercy, and forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be with all of you. We'll look forward to seeing you at 4.30. See you soon. Take care.